Howdy's everybody, and this is a special edition of Working the Beat. I'm Kevin Cooney. Thanks for joining us. As 2020 rolls to a close, we decided this would be a good chance to take a look back on some of the people we've had on our show over the past 365 days. Uh, 365 days that have not... um, have not been seen ever before. And so one of the blessings of doing this show has been that we have been able to touch on a lot of topics and bring a lot of incredible people uh, into uh, your car or your house or wherever you listen to this podcast. So uh, we want to take a moment and to recognize some of our favorite interviews and some of the most standout interviews we've had. All of our guests have been great that we've had over the year, but Mike and I have been f- privileged enough to bring a few of them into uh, a few special people into our uh, our interview segments, and so we wanted to bring that in. And our first one goes back to an old friend, and these are clips. These are not going to be full interviews, but these are clips. If you want to hear the full interviews, you can go back in the uh, iTunes or Google Play library and, and find them. Uh, a lot of them deal not just with timely issues. A lot of them deal with bigger issues. So, and we're going to try to highlight some of those on this show. One of the people we ha- both like, Michael and I, because we were both in his presence for so many years, and he's been a presence in your living room for the last, oh, 25 or 30 years, both at Channel 3 and then eventually at Comcast Sportsnet and NBC Sports Philadelphia. Our first interview of 2020 came the week before the Eagles played the Seattle Seahawks. Feels like a million years ago in the NFC wildcard game. Michael Barkin was scheduled to be on vacation. Uh, and then, eh, well, things changed. So from January 3rd, this is Michael Barkin of NBC, Michael Barkin of NBC Sports Philadelphia talking about his memories of Daily News Live, our first interview, our first interview segment on the best of 2020 friend of mr kearns a friend of mine somebody we've been trying to get on the show now, forever you, you talk about we've had a lot of what you would call icons kind of oh like, this is this oh, isn't no 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 michael look whatever <laughs> you think it's michael barkham by the way of, what? It is? of, of oh, com I see i still say comcast but it's what, what's it now cnbc sports you, philadelphia okay. thank you michael you might not think this but you're as recognizable as anybody in the last couple decades in this town. So, yeah, you're you're kind of in that Angelo. Uh, who else do we have? Ray D. Ray, um, Angelo. Um, there's well, been Merrill, other people. Well, yeah, we've, we've had, yeah. yeah. So you're you're in that group. Like a nightlight. What's know, that? I've been like a nightlight for all these years. <laughs> I just, just always do. What's the, what's the line showing up is half of it. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I try to show up, be of good humor, good cheer, but impart a little bit of knowledge if I can. And um, set up people like yourselves who know infinitely more than I do. And, Michael, uh, but- I always heard people will still come up to me and tell me they miss Daily News Live, and I do too. And t- to me, two things made Daily News Live, and we were on for longer than MASH, as Eddie Barkwitz always says. It was the per- <laughs> it was the personality of our guys in the Daily News sports staff, but it was the guy doing the orchestrating, which was you, and to have a different cast of characters every day. And we made mistakes. We didn't always, you know... But to me, that was one of the hardest and most underappreciated jobs in the world, and you did it pretty well. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and it was great working 
with everybody from the Daily News staff and folks from other newspapers and organizations like yourself, Kevin. And, and that was one of the things that made it so enjoyable for me. It was a constant variety, and but yet a sameness that makes you look forward to. I knew I was going to see Kevin Cooney, if not once a week, close to it. I know yeah. I was going to see Mike Kern one or two times a week. Same with Dick Girardi. And so, it, but but I'd also see Marcus. I also see Rich Hoffman. I'd also see, and and so there, it changed every day. But it was still the same group of guys. And so it was like being with your buddies. And and it was a it really was a, a special time. And I feel blessed that I was able to do it for for my goodness twenty years longer than Mash. <laughs> and he says we had a longer run than mash yeah so yeah, you know <laughs> and we Absolutely. got to play we got to play olympic miniature golf yeah, that me, was, you and that i was the pinnacle that was the pinnacle and, and you were beating me by two after two holes by the way people forget that but i was starting to get scared <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were getting scared Are you kidding me? michael uh, let me ask you about the daily news live thing before we get into the eagles and everything this weekend yeah. um yes sir you used to be when I would come on, you would always be a calm presence. I mean, you have people talking in your ear. You have Booney or Robbie Ellis or whatever, uh, depending on the whoever was host uh, producing at the time. And a lot of things could be going around, you know, videotape rolling, arguments breaking going on news. between panels. Yeah, breaking news. And you were always able to keep it calm. How, how, how do you learn doing that? I mean, for somebody who's trying to get into broadcasting now, how do you tr how do you handle that when when like the world is going nuts around you? Yeah, and it was ninety minutes when yeah. we first started. Yeah, ninety minutes, <laughs> ninety minutes back in the day. Um, I think you learn it by one. You have to have the producer position is crucial. It really is. And you mentioned Robbie Ellis. I mean, that guy was the epitome of calm when it was just a storm of of chaos going on in the control room, and he would let me know only what I needed to know. And, and also, it's just the ability to to focus and knowing that you're on television and the viewer at home doesn't care what's going on in your ear, what's going on with the guys on the set, what's going on in the control room. All the viewer cares about is what kind of information and or entertainment I get, am I getting right now as I watch this program. And so, um, and the other thing was, Kevin, and it's a great question, really. The, the, the other thing is, it's like it's sports. And I know in Philadelphia, it is the lifeblood of our community. Right. I get that. But at the same time, it is sports. I mean, people for the most part are not dying. People are, I mean, yeah, we say we die when the teams lose or, or we, we go through a tough time. And that's absolutely true, but still it's, it's the fun and games department of life. And I always felt blessed to be able to do that. Um, uh, our, our good friend, uh, Howard Eskin likes to say, I never worked a day in my life. And I think that's a, that's important. It might be a bunch of BS, but the fact of the matter is, if you can say that about your occupation, that that you enjoy doing what you do, right. and you're able to make a living at it, then you're doing the right thing with your life. And I tell kids that too. You ask about kids getting into the business. I tell them that. You know, you better think about what you really want to do with your life. And look, I have, I have bad days like everybody else. You know, I don't want to go in today, or it's it's raining, and you, you get all depressed, or it's a Monday, or whatever. But by and large, you need to really enjoy what you're doing 90% of the time, 80% of the time. And and I was fortunate that I knew I loved sports. Um, we all wanted to be professional athletes when we were kids. I realized that that was not going to be a possibility in pretty short order when I was growing up. And I thought, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a professor. I, 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 want, to, I want to stay around sports. 
how can I do that? So, so, you know, you ask yourself the right, and that's the other thing you ask yourself the right questions and you come up with the answers. And so, you know, what do you want to do? I want to stay around sports. Well, how are you going to do that? You got to go to communication school. How are you going to do that? Get your grades up. How are you going to, you know, all of it. And then it just, you boil it down to the, to the last principles that you have. And then you go, you go seek what your goal is. But so that's what I did. The first serious breaking news event of the sports year 2020, though, came at the end of January when one night after LeBron James passed him on the all-time scoring list in Philadelphia, ironically, Kobe Bryant, the Laura Marion native, passed away in a helicopter accident with his daughter and members of her team in Los Angeles. It was a shocking event, one of those that hasn't been felt in sports in generations. So we spent the next night, the Monday night, reflecting on what Kobe's legacy was, both in the NBA and around here. We figured there was no better person to talk about that than one of the people who covered Kobe when he was around here. Knew Kobe's family because of Joe Bryant. That was former Daily News college basketball writer, Dick Girardi. This was January 27th, 2020. Gives about as philadelphian as you can get and he'll give us what kobe's legacy in the city is and we'll get to that in ball writer for the philadelphia daily news now currently the color analyst on penn state men's basketball broadcast it's uh dick girardi dick how are you i'm good guys what's going on not much um we've had better days yeah indeed um so i guess the question i asked mike and i'll ask you where were you yesterday when the news came out I was pulling into the parking lot at St. Joe's Prep. I was going to the Prep Roman game because they were going to honor Speedy after the game. It's his last wow. year, wow. and it's the last weekend home game at the Prep, so they thought that was the right day to honor him. So I got there just as the pregame ceremony was going on, and as I pulled in, a guy I did not know stopped me and said, did you hear about Kobe Bryant? And when I heard that, I said, this is not going to be good news. I didn't know how bad it was. Uh, and then he told me. And I actually walked inside with Fran Dumpy. And the first person I saw inside was Lionel Simmons. And he said to me, is that true about Kobe? And I said, I, I guess. I didn't know. And then, of course, it was blasting all over the place. And uh, it was true. And it was just a... It was a strange place to be, but in some way uh, an interesting place to be with all the basketball types from all over the city were there yesterday. Uh, coaches, players, a lot of people there to honor Speedy. So, yeah, during the game, yeah, we were watching the game, but everybody was talking about the news. And, of course, each time some more news came, it got worse all day long. You know, Dick, almost 30 years ago, which seems hard to believe, you had to cover the Hank Gathers story and that's the one thing from a Philadelphia standpoint, you know, something like this. Um, is, is it similar to you? I mean, I know Kobe was bigger. Kobe's a, you know, a bigger global thing and all that. But it, is there, are there any similarities to, to, you know, losing someone well before their time? Yeah, when you I, yeah I think so, Mike. Yeah, no, it, it is amazing. It's been 30 years since Hank died 30 years ago uh, this, this March. That's unreal. Um, it's, it's unreal. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I was in uh, Albany, New York, and that great LaSalle team, uh, Lionel Simmons, their only loss until the NCAA tournament was against Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball at the Civic Center. And Yeah, I, I remember that like it was yesterday. It was actually, it was also a Sunday. Uh, it was a Sunday night, 
Um, Sal was just getting finished beating Sienna to go to the finals of their conference tournament when the, I got I actually got a call from the from the desk. It was pre cell phones that, that Hank had died, and I actually told some of the LaSalle people about it as the game was ending. So yeah, there there were some similarities in the suddenness of it. Uh, Hank, I want to say it was like 22, Kobe 41. So when Hank had another 60 years, Kobe had half his life. Yeah, obviously Kobe was a bigger international figure in Philly. In some ways, Hank was every bit as big as Kobe because he was a public league champion. Mm-hmm. He played in the public league. Everybody knew him. Um, but yeah, now you're right. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. There are some similarities. Um, Hank died, of course, on the court where Kobe died trying to help his daughter, and it sounds like it looks like several, from what I can gather, several of her teammates, yes, and parents were heading to um, a game, a game um, that that morning up in uh, up north of Los Angeles. And Kobe lives south of LA in Orange County, and I know he always got around by helicopter just to avoid the crazy traffic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, he had half his life. His daughter obviously had her whole life. And a number of the other uh, young children and parents. Eh, it's just, it's. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. Dick, in in the mid '90s, you covered LaSalle, and obviously Joe Bryant was an assistant at LaSalle. So, you, what what are your remembrances of Kobe when he was a high school player? Because the way a lot of people have been talking, Mark Jackson, Donnie Carno, they said you know he came out when he was only 13 because they came back from Italy, and there was mm-hmm. this kid that showed up and maybe wasn't ready yet, but you could kind of tell. What, what are your remembrances of Kobe as a high school? And I don't know how many times you got to see him because you were obviously doing other things, but what do you remember of that time? Yeah, my memory is that I saw him play twice. And I, I think I saw him as a junior against Coatesville in the districts at the Pluster when Rip Hamilton was the Coatesville star. And I know for sure I saw him at Trexel playing against Donnie Carr and Roman Catholic. And I think that was when they were both seniors. Yeah. Although I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's accurate. Um, and you could tell he was just, he was fabulous. And I talked to people around and knew about him. And I did know about him probably earlier than most because Joe came on the scene. And, and it's interesting, when Joe got back, that's when Speedy hired him as an assistant and a lot of people said, well, he hired him so he could get Kobe. And Speedy, and I actually believe this because Speedy's kind of a, he's a wonderful guy, but he's a little bit naive. Uh, he didn't really have any idea how good Kobe was. Um, once he realized it, was he happy that Joe was an assistant, thought maybe he had a chance to get him? Of course. Uh, but I was around it. I never thought he had any chance to get Kobe, I think. Uh, if he went to college, he was going to go to one of the one of the big name schools. He wasn't going to the South. I don't think he was going to stay local. Uh, but once he made up his mind, obviously he wasn't going to college. That was irrelevant anyway. But yeah, it was interesting that Joe was an assistant. And I actually found out. I, I was thinking about this last night. Um, when it, it started to become a rumor that Kobe might not go to college, and remember, not many people did that back then. Kevin Garnett had done it, I think, the year before. Year before. And, and, da- and Daryl Dawkins minute. and Daryl Dawkins was the last one before that. And I think that was right. the, the mid seventies, 20 years. Right. Yeah. So no, nobody was doing it. So the rumor was out there. We think that's probably not really going to happen. And then I got wind uh, that Joe Bryant had kind of disappeared. From the <laughs> I remember office. you telling me this. <laughs> yeah. And where's Joe and <laughs> would appear on Fridays to pick up his paycheck, but nobody ever actually saw him. Uh, and then I, I called Sonny Vaccaro 
because I heard he was involved in potentially putting a shoe deal together for Kobe. And Sonny, unlike most people, will actually tell you the truth when you talk to him. And he said, yeah, I'm putting a shoe deal for him. So I said, well, that means he ain't going to college. He said, that's correct. Mm -hmm. So we actually broke the story that he was going to go to the pros well before they were ready to say it. And there were some people not happy with me, but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was fascinating because I wasn't sure after watching him that he'd be good enough uh lebron i saw and i said well obviously he's good enough it didn't take a genius to figure that out and it did take kobe a year or two i was surprised he only averaged seven points his first year but by his second or third year it was obvious and, and the rest of its history uh now he's one of the all-time all-timers he's one of the best ever played Heyman hall would have never been the same dick no could you imagine <laughs> the, the goal on the third on the third kobe floor yeah yeah they they had to move the games back to the pluster somewhere right <laughs> That was our buddy Dick Girardi back in late January on the night after, the Monday night after, uh, the death of Kobe Bryant uh, in Los Angeles. And that was a milestone moment, a tragic moment, and unfortunately a, a kind of a, a harbinger of what was to lie ahead for all of us this year of turmoil and loss and sorrow. Um, and... The the canary in the coal mine of what the rest of the year would look like came all the way back on one of the best sports weekends weeks of the year, championship week. It was then that Rudy Gobert in the NBA with the Utah Jazz tested positive uh, for COVID-19, uh, drawing the NBA to shut down, the NHL shut down, and we were actually recording when the NCAA tournament became a victim. The date was March 12th, 2020. You want to see as few people get sick as possible and as few people die as possible. And I think the best way to do that, schools are going to close. You yeah. notice they may only close yeah. for a week or two. Montgomery County already announced that they're going to be weeks, closing schools. Least. And I think that makes sense. Yeah. A kid can recover from missing. Colleges have already closed. They're done. They're done, and and what I fear is college may be done because they may just figure out we can do this online. Mine. Oh, but if and you, don't laugh that that well, we there is already there is already anyway. Way. But I mean, people I think want to have the experience of going to March Penn Madness going has to officially been canceled. There you go. You're breaking news. Uh, today, President Mark Emmer and the Board of Governors canceled the Division One men's and women's 2020 basketball tournaments, as well as all remaining winter and spring NCAA championships. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's all over. The decision is based on the evolving COVID-19. That's the official uh, 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 coronavirus uh, name, public health threat. Our ability to ensure events do not contribute to the spread of the pandemic and the impracticality of hosting such events at any time during the academic year, given ongoing decisions by other entities. So I think that's the right move. The NCAA tournament. Will not be competed. They didn't say for. they're going to. They didn't say they're going to delay it. They said it's, it's over. It is canceled. Okay, so it'll be, it'll be like ninety four baseball. There will be no champ. Yeah, and so all spring sports. There's no college world series. Yeah, there's no co softball. No nothing. What else do we have? Is it Pem, how about the Pem relays? Boy, that's see, that's not college. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, but it's not an NCAA. They have other things besides colleges there. Yeah, yeah. I, I would think the pen relays man. are done. Well, you're still five weeks away. I would agree with. I would tend to agree with you 
Um, but who am I to say? I mean, it, it, I would tend to agree with you. But then it comes into the question, are the Olympics in trouble? Well, that's the next I, one. I, I think they are. But it's so far out well, yet. Well, and they, here, but well, let's play a scenario out here, okay? I was thinking about this uh, this morning. Um, let's say the NBA is back May first, and they decide they want to go into finish a, two weeks of a regular season. I don't even think they do that. No, no, but, yeah. but uh, I think they would just play. Have, I think they'd have a playoff. They, they right. would figure out whoever was but, in the playoffs is in the right. Playoffs. But but all right, you're talking about you know. One of the big selling points of the Olympics is men's basketball, women's basketball, and having the pros there anymore. When is the Olympics? August, J- July. So it's right after the season. It's it, only like a month. It's after a the month season. after the season. Yeah, and you still have a qualifying tournament. Yeah, and you, I mean, so you're, you're talking. Telling, you're telling me that the NBA might not want to end on July, like a week before the Olympics. Is no, I think to what's going to happen is. Well, we're talking about the Olympics, and the Olympics may have no basketball yeah. because of the fact that if yeah. you're the NBA, you're ticket care number one, sure, and you're not really worried about what happens. And you know what my answer would be? That, so, oh, well, so what? No, I'm it's, not. It's, and, and I feel for some. I feel for somebody maybe like from Greece or something. I'm just bringing up a country who that might have been like the highlight of their you know their career playing in. And this is the way the day is going. By the way, here's another one. Um, yeah, this is Woj uh, with the NBA. NBA owners are encouraging Commissioner Adam Silver to reevaluate the league suspension in 30 days. Yeah, that's which bad. would take that to right, right around. Uh, it's around the it's around the third week of April. Yeah, that makes perfect you, sense. You would need a week at least to probably get ready to play. I don't think they're going to have a regular season. I no, think but even if yeah. you went right into the playoffs, you they won't go right into the playoffs. So, and the playoffs may be abbreviated. You may not see. Best of seven, but you, you may see best, best of three. Of five or, you might yeah. see a best of three in the first round because they're and, and then you got to work it out with CBS. You have to work it out with the arenas, which I don't think will be a problem. But but you do have to work out the dates with the arenas. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you have to get all that stuff done. I think that the NBA, what the NBA is saying, and the NHL should do the same thing. Check back in a month. We'll figure it out. And I think unless this thing gets really really bad, which I'm hoping it doesn't. I think you're going to see playoff. I think you'll see you you'll see an NBA and an NHL playoff. And as we will learn later, there would be a playoff, but it would take on a much different way than we ever could have imagined on that afternoon. No more games at the Wells Fargo Center or any regular arena in both the NHL and the NBA. The NBA went to Orlando, where the bubble saw the Los Angeles Lakers claim a world championship in October of all things. Meanwhile, the NHL dragged into late September, and it was the Tampa Bay Lightning playing in Toronto and Edmonton bubbles away from the American mainland that ended up winning the cup over the Dallas Stars. The NCAA tournament really didn't ever, well, never did resume, and college basketball has been slow to get going. But it was interesting to look back at those days after the the call-off. And in late April, excuse me, in early April, we ended up talking to Jay Wright. The Villanova coach had won two national championships. His team would have been in the hunt for a third at the last four year, uh, five years, except everything got shut down. Here's Jay's memories of leaving New York City and the uncertain future that occurred on that afternoon. 
I, I got to ask, what's, yeah, normally I would assume, you know, we're recording this on April 1st. You would probably be in Atlanta either with your team or maybe at the convention or whatever uh, for the Final Four. What's this been like for you the last three weeks? You know, it, it's really been um, bizarre, Kevin, you know, as I'm sure it has been for everybody. Um, you, you know, you, you, you start to think about, you know, kind of the rhythm of your lifestyle. And, and um, since I, since I graduated from college, you know, I've, I've always been a basketball coach except for one year after college working for the Philadelphia stars. But uh, every year d- during March, you know, I'm either March is a busy time because you're, you're either in the tournament or if you're not in the tournament, you're working your butt off recruiting because you know, you're behind because your team's not in the tournament, you know? And then, um, as you guys know, the, the final four is, is such a, um, a big event in the coaching world. Um, if, if you make it as a coach, it, it's kind of career defining, but even if you don't, the, those four or five days you spend out there, you have meetings, you catch up with all the coaches, a lot of networking, um, you know, a lot of rules, discussion, um, a lot of fun, you know, and, and you're watching the final four games, you go to the games, you get good seats, um, and you're kind of refocusing yourself on the next year. I always felt like when you come by, when you come home from the final four, um, if you're not in it, when you come home, like everybody's on equal ground, you're starting new, but, but you don't start new until that final four is over. And, um, and so not having all of that this month is, has, has, has just been a, a really strange month of March. Um, but I can't say that there has, haven't been positives. You know, I've enjoyed being home with my family. Uh, I, I have to ask, I mean, you were in New York, obviously for the big East tournament when, when everything kind of broke out, I mean, you know, and every, and all that, what was it like sitting there? I mean, you had one night of the tournament that finished, you know, the first night and you had that St. John's uh, Creighton game, which got called at halftime. When did you guys know this was probably not going to continue? You know, Kev, you know, Mike gets sick of hearing me say this when he covers us, but I, you know, I always feel like uh, there are so many things when when you have a great season and, and, you know, you win a championship, when you look back on it, you, you realize that there's so many things that were just, God's will, you know, you just got good breaks and, and, and now you have to be good enough and you have to work hard, but you know, so much of it is just God's will. And, um, I look back at my, at my personal last year and our, our team, I was in China this fall, right? you know, with the USA team. And I feel like I got out of it, you know, obviously we didn't know and we didn't hear anything about it when we were there, but, um, you know, I got out of there right before it got really bad. And, um, and I feel the same thing about New York. Like when we were up there, it was starting to become eerie because it, you know, we, um, we went up there on Tuesday and we've been doing this for, you know, 19 years. You, you know, you deal with the traffic and every, you know, we go to practice at, um, uh, at John Jay and, right. and you know, you got it, you plan for traffic and, 
we had to go to the garden for the award ceremony where Jeremiah Robinson Earl got the rookie of the year award. You know, you plan for traffic. Well, we were just zipping right through. There was no one, there was no New York traffic. We, you know, we were zipping around and we were saying to ourselves like, this is, this is weird, man. It's just not crowded. And then we were going to practice on Wednesday at John Jay and they call us and say, Hey, we had a case at our university. So the place is shut down. You can't practice. So we're scrambling around to find uh, a place to practice, you know, and then we, um, we walk to the, we stay right on central park South there. Mm -hmm. So we walk to the New York athletic club and um, the, the other side of it is we were playing really good basketball. We felt like we were really playing good basketball. We, we wound up going to uh, basketball city, which is on the, on the East river. And um, we were the only, you know, it's this big, huge place with, right. um, they have like 20 courts in there. And we're the only people in there. The place was shut down. The guy opened it for us and we practiced there. We have a great practice. And then day of the game, we're ready to go. Like we have a walkthrough at the New York athletic club in the morning. We're, we're just so dialed in and we're sitting down eating lunch and we're watching the start of Creighton and St. John's and we're ready for DePaul that night. And, you know, you just get so focused at that time. You forget about everything else. You forget about the coronavirus. You're just into your game. And then you're watching that game and we get a call, bam, to cancel on the, the big East tournament. And for the first time we're thinking, you know, I said to the team, I, we usually have everything planned for you. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if we're staying up here. I don't know if we're going home. Go back to your rooms and we'll let you know. And then we wound up leaving right away and, and, and got back to got back to Villanova that afternoon. And all the media was there. And as we were speaking to the media, somebody handed me a phone. It might have been Mark Meany handed me a phone and showed me that the NCAA had canceled the tournament. So then we had to go meet with the guys. So it was a wild day. I have to ask this. I mean, how much as a coach and head of a program, do you monitor your guys after you've been in New York like that for symptoms and, and everything that's going on? You know, Kev, it, it's it, it, it right. The, the last day as we, that we were there, you start hearing all these things, you know, our, our team, we had our team doctor who was with us, Dr. Mike Duncan. He, he talked to the team and explained to the team that, uh, you know, if anybody has symptoms, it was a mandate by the Big East and the city of New York that they we had to quarantine them immediately and we they had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. They didn't want they didn't want you to get into an Uber or a cab. Right. So, you know, we're having these discussions and that that's that was the day before that was Wednesday. We, we were going to play on Thursday. So we're having those discussions on Wednesday, you know, and, and his point was, you know, if you have any symptoms, let us know immediately and, and then stay in your room and then don't, you know, said to the coaches, like, don't drive them. You know, like we have, there's a, there's a mandate that we have to have them taken out of the hotel by ambulance. So, you know, you, it was, now it's starting to become a little bit normal. Right. But at that time, that was bizarre to us. That was Villanova basketball coach Jay Wright, who joined us on April 1st to discuss the end of Villanova season and what it was like to live through the early days of the coronavirus scare in New York. I'm Kevin Cooney. This is the best of 2020. Some of the people who joined us on Work in the Beat this year. 
Todd Zalecki's been a regular on this program over the years. Uh, he has covered the Phillies for over 15 years now. I think it's actually 17. He goes back to 2003. Uh, this was a different type of baseball year. but And we talked about that in our April discussion, obviously, because baseball had been put on hold and everything. Uh, but the main subject was Todd's upcoming book, Doc, The Life and Times of Roy Halladay. If you haven't picked it up, hopefully you could grab one on uh, for a holiday gift for someone you love or for yourself. It is tremendous quality reading. And it details a lot of things about the Hall of Famer and some of the things that we have learned later after his tragic death two years ago or three years ago. In this excerpt, we talked about the process that Todd went through in writing the book, including talking to Brandy Halliday, Roy's widow, about some of the stuff that was included in the book. This is Todd Zalecki uh, from mid-April 2020 talking about Roy Halliday. Did you, what was I mean, the title of the book, Kevin? Doc. Doc is the title of the book. Um, okay. uh, there's a subtitle too, correct? Yeah, Doc, the life of Roy Halliday. Roy Halliday. Yep. And you got cooperation from Brandy, um, agr- correct? Uh, yes, I talked. Yeah, I talked to Brandy Halliday, Roy's wife, uh, extensively uh, on multiple occasions, and she really kind of helped fill in a lot of pieces and kind of explained, you know, what happened throughout his life, particularly uh, toward the end of his life, and kind of helped. You know, maybe not answer some things, but just kind of give her opinion on some things and explain some things. Um, you know, there's always going to be some questions about, you know, the day that he passed away and the plane crash and whatnot and kind of what happened at the end of his life. But um, hopefully, uh, you know, I I can at least I address those things as much as I could uh, without him being here. But You you and I, I mean, you covered him as tightly as anybody in Philadelphia. Obviously, I'm sure if you, there's some Toronto writers I know that probably got close to him as well. But he always did keep a little bit of a distance. Right. Um, what was the one thing that when you peel back the onion a little bit that you were able to, to find out that maybe you didn't know? Well, I, I think the thing that was interesting about him and helped explain why he was, how he was, was... He had a lot of, um, you know, he he was really pushed hard as a kid uh, by his dad, mm-hmm. and his, you know, he really sought approval from his father and and uh, to make him to make him proud and to you know just make him happy and whatnot, and he kind of carried that that feeling that internal feeling inside of him throughout his life, and so that constantly not not his dad necessarily, but he just he just continually worked super hard. Like everybody talked about his work ethic, his work ethic, his work ethic. Um, part of the thing that drove him was that he just didn't want to let anybody down and he didn't want to let anybody fail. So, you know, it's, it, it, so it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a workout routine for him. You know, there was, there was a, a mental aspect of it as well. Uh, but there was, you know, he, you know, he was, he thought he was at the end of his rope, uh, in 2001, when he gets sent down to a ball all the way from the big leagues. And, uh, you know, then he found the mental ABCs of pitching the, the book from Harvey, Harvey Dorfman. Dorfman. Right. And it, and it really kind of saved his life. It saved his baseball career, but it kind of saved his life in a sense as well. Cause it helped him kind of manage the insecurities, the self doubt, the confidence issues that he had 
and it helped him kind of gain confidence by giving him a plan uh, to compete. And uh, I thought that was that was interesting. So, and that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is because I always I always thought it was interesting after Roy retired how he wanted to kind of carry on Har- Harvey Dorfman's um, message and, and right. life's work because Roy – and I thought it was interesting because he had made like $150 million in his career. Usually guys that do that, they become – you know, they just retire and they're never heard from again, or they become like a broadcaster or they become one of those club ambassadors. You know, they shake babe, you know, shake hands and kiss babies types of guys, play, play a couple rounds of golf. Right. But he, he wanted to become a mental skills coach because he knew that there were other people struggling out there just like him. And, and in his mind, this is his way of helping people that needed help because he knew how much help he needed. And I, that, that part of, of Roy kind of fascinated me, you know, that he felt compelled to, to give back and help other people that were going through mental issues. Like he was, he was, uh, you know, in the years I covered it, I don't know how you feel. He was the deepest thinker in a sense of, look, it was tough to talk to him before starts and everything. But when you talk to him after a start and the way he could break everything down in a game and give thoughtful answers it, it, that's all a result of what happened early, that, that that he kind of studied the mind and how everything went with pitching, and you could see it as years went on. He's di- He was different in that respect than most of the players we've dealt with. Yeah, he was, he, was, he was a super smart, super prepared pitcher, and he, you know, he just worked really, really hard to, to know everything that he could, and so he had an answer, and he, he understood exactly what happened with every pitch that he threw and every result that happened, you know, on, on the field, you know, like one example I can, that just comes to mind is, um, you know, when he threw that postseason no hitter against the Reds, he had right. nine days to prepare for that start. And so he felt he was going to absolutely dominate the Reds in that game. Cause in his mind, there's no way that the Reds could out prepare him. Cause he's like, I have nine days to prepare. I usually have four. Mm-hmm. So now I have double the amount of time I can prepare. So he studied every hitter. He felt like he knew every hitter and, and what they were thinking in every, in every count. And not only did he study every hitter, he studied every pitcher that he thought could hit. So I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was Edison Volquez started that game. He, yep. he got knocked, knocked out relatively early. And I think it was Travis Wood ended up uh, second or third in, inning. Yeah. Second or third inning, he hit a rocket to right field. Well, now, Doc didn't make a good pitch in that spot, but he had he had actually studied Travis Woods at bats because he thought in a, in a situation where Volquez gets knocked out of the game early, they'll put the lefty Travis in. Would, yeah, Travis Wood would be the most likely guy to come in, and wow. if he comes in, he's going to hit. So he, he didn't just study Roland and Jay Bruce and Joey Votto and Brandon Phillips. He studied Travis Woods at bats. <laughs> You know, it's and Travis it's, Wood was actually a decent hitter for a pitcher too. That was the well, thing. Yeah, but I mean, like, just the but idea, the idea that yeah, you're you're taking on another level there. It's yeah, forty chess. Yeah, he is thinking on a totally different level. Uh, you know, Roy on flights, uh, he would have two iPad. He every every player at big leagues they get their own row, right? And he would have he would have two iPads on the on the tray tables in front of him. The one on the left would be the hitter that he's studying, and his last. 20 at bats against right-handed pitchers. Okay. Uh, the iPad on his right 
would be that hitter in his last 10 at bats against Roy Halladay. And so he would compare, he would go back, okay, this is what I did against this guy the last 10 times I faced him. And here's what this guy has done the last 20 times he's faced a right-handed pitcher. So he could see, oh, okay, this guy's moved up a little bit in the box or moved a little bit closer to the plate. So now if I have to throw this pitch in a certain spot, I might have to adjust a little bit. And then he also had his notebook spread out in front of him as well. So while most players on flights are playing cards or watching movies or sleeping or just hanging out and BSing, Roy has two iPads out, his notebook's out, and he is studying he is studying everything he can because in his mind if he prepared he needed to feel prepared when he stepped out on the mound to feel confident if he if he felt like he cheated himself then he wouldn't feel he could go out and pitch successfully but most of the time he always felt like he, he had prepared himself the way he needed to be prepared that's Todd Selecki from mlb.com talking about his book doc the life and times of Roy Halladay you can pick that up on Amazon or anywhere books are sold one of the people that Todd has covered and that we had on this show this year. In fact, it was Todd's first manager. It was my first, well, first manager. I did a couple games with Francona, uh, but Larry Bella, a Phillies lifer, uh, somebody who probably should earn some Hall of Fame uh, looks at, at the shortstop spot, one of the best defensive shortstops of all time, certainly one of the icons in Phillies history. Larry joined us uh, to talk about baseball back in early May. Uh, We had him and Shane Victorino on back-to-back. You can find those uh, interviews on our archives. And one of the stories that I found interesting and that uh, I know I wanted to talk about was his relationship with Charlie Manuel. They have become kind of a buddy comedy thing, Uh, which was funny because it wasn't always that way when Charlie got brought over to the Phillies. Larry was the manager and Larry was replaced by Charlie. And uh, so the, the question was, how did this relationship turn out to be like this? Here's Larry Boa. The date for that was May 6, 2020 here on our 2020 year in review special. I got to ask because I was covering your last couple of years uh, as a manager. And then I covered Charlie. Um, right. I got to admit, if you had told me in 2005, you and Charlie would be hanging out together and becoming like this good scoreboard act every time at the ballpark, I would have been a little surprised. What's it been like for you and him kind of through your roles with the organization? You drive to minor league games together, correct? When when yep. Charlie's in town. Yep, I know when, when Charlie was sick, you were there a lot at yep. the hospital. Right. Just what has this been like for you guys and for you getting close to him well that it's been that would be a heck of a ride oh, we, um, a couple times i told him i'm gonna drive because when he starts talking to hit and you know he takes his hand off the steering wheel and he starts swinging i go hey, hey charlie wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but, uh, the reason i like charlie i mean he's a great guy uh once you get to know charlie he's, he's got a tremendous personality yep. he loves baseball I think the one common thread is both of us eat and sleep baseball. And I remember, and he tells the story, uh, down the instructional league in the late sixties, we were down there and he got a base. He, he had a double off the wall off a kid by the name of, we had a guy in our organization named Lowell Palmer at the time threw really hard. I remember Charlie hit the double and I was playing short and I said, man, 
I said, I ain't seen too many guys, you know, turn that fastball around like that. And he goes, yeah, he says, I can hit, man. I can hit. So <laughs> ever since that time, you know, I knew that he was, he was a good baseball guy. And, you know, he, he's the first to tell me, too. I mean, he's told me – if he's told me once, he's told me a bunch of times. He says, you know, when you came over in 2001, you had to change that whole attitude in the clubhouse and everything. And I said, you know, yeah. Charlie, you know, I was it was it was time for them to, you know, get a feel of what it's like to win. I said, and it was it was hard to change that atmosphere in that clubhouse, and we did pretty good for those four years. And then Charlie took over, and they made a couple pickups, and of course Jimmy and and uh, and Howie and uh, and Chase all started getting their their gig together, and they started becoming great players like uh, like no other. And then they got the good pitchers. They got Lee and Holiday and and Hamill. So, I mean, it was perfect for, for Charlie to come in and, and take him to the next step. But I had a lot of fun changes, changing the chemistry and the attitude of that club because it was, it wasn't a good team and nothing against Terry Francona. They, they, they were terrible. I mean, they, they, they had no they talent been, in the system. They, yeah. They could have had the greatest manager in the world when Terry had them. They weren't winning any games. They but, had, uh, with Terry, with Terry, they had two players. They had Schilling. Right. It was a holdover, obviously, from when you were around with, with, with Fergosi and all them back in, in the early 90s. Right, right. And they had Scotty who came up, but Scotty's right. heart was never really in staying here, I thought. So, you know, and right. that's a whole different story. But, I mean. Yeah, if you don't have, you don't have players, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If you're, it, it doesn't matter who's managing the team. So, you got to have, you got to have the bullets to go out there every day. And, uh, you know, obviously, Charlie's team, uh, I had to rip them the other day because they had a mock. Uh, playoff between the 80 team and the 08 Jim Salisbury. Yeah. Four, four games of two. We won four games of two. And Charlie kept saying, how, how, you hit 375. We couldn't get you out. I said, man, because they, they concentrated too much on the top of our lineup. <laughs> and by the time they got to me, they were tired. So they let me get base hits. How is Charlie doing by the way? I, he's I, doing really good. In fact, he's chomping at the bit. He's ready to go. You know, he missed the entire spring. Right. And uh, he said, man, I gotta, I gotta eat some baseball. I gotta watch some baseball. So hopefully we get to do it, but you know, again, that's going to be up to the doctors and the scientists, and uh, you know, we don't want to have it come back and have this thing be twice as bad as it was when it first came out. I can almost guarantee yeah. Charlie's up watching the Korean League at three thirty in the oh, morning. I guarantee he was. I guarantee he was. <laughs> well, there are a few brighter baseball minds than Larry Bella, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to him. It was fun to cover him. It wasn't always easy. Yeah, there were some stormy seas, and he had some teams that he had to turn the culture around. But Larry, uh, Larry certainly made things interesting, and uh, he was part of a, a a a really fun interview. And you have a shot to go back and listen to that on our archives, both on the uh, in Apple uh, in the Apple Podcast section and in Google Play, or on our SoundCloud page, uh, which is linked to this link. If you are listening, I'm Kevin Cooney. This is the 2020 Year in Review. We go from baseball to hardball, politics style. Uh, one of the main voices out of uh, Washington, D.C. this year, and he's now writing a book with Bob Woodward, has been Robert Costa of the Washington Post. Now, I got to know Robert a little bit uh, when he worked at the Bucks County Courier Times in the reality section. And his first interview was interviewing members of the Eagles, in fact, David Akers, who were at a Dick's Sporting Goods in Langhorn. Robert's now the lead political columnist, uh, com- uh, reporter rather for the Washington Post. So in May, we talked to him about the pol- sports and how it played in the politics with the coronavirus. 
and how important it was then for a president running for re-election to get sports back. This is Robert Costa from mid-May here on Working the Beat. Ties in with sports. Uh, obviously, there's been a big push by the Trump administration and uh, a lot of Republicans around the country to start reopening, and sports has been part of this. I mean, you know, obviously, Mitch McConnell apparently reportedly called Rob Manfred a couple weeks ago about reopening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the White House has been in constant contact with all the league commissioners about reopening. Do they see this as an important cog in their plan to get reopened? And how much of a political angle is there for them? Because they want to portray the idea of normalcy coming back before November. Oh, it's a, it's a big political issue. You hear it from both sides. I especially hear it from my sources in the Trump White House. They're saying we got to get sports back before the election because the country, its whole mood is shaped by sports. And they know it's going to probably be tougher to get college sports back because of the liability and the universities. They're hoping baseball is going to come back in some capacity. They're really hoping the NFL comes back. It looks like the, NF, the NBA is working out some kind of deal. The issue here, though, and this is a big part of actually what I'm covering right now at the Post, is liability. Because a lot of businesses, including sports teams, are saying, we don't want to be sued by the fans if we let fans back. We don't want to also be sued by the players. Uh, And Congress, it's going to be, I think, very tough for the Congress to get together on the liability issue. Mitch McConnell wants a liability shield for businesses, but Democrats who run the House are saying, we got to be with the unions. We got to protect workers and their ability to file a lawsuit. We don't want liability. So at this point, the, the thing that's probably going to come out of Congress is more money for states, maybe some tax incentives for businesses that are bringing their supply chains back to the United States. But you hear, I, I've been talking to a lot of governors over the past few days, Governor Northam of Virginia, Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. And for, Hutchinson is a Republican in Arkansas. He didn't have a stay-at-home order. And he was telling me the other day that, he wants sports back. He wants people in the stands. But to that cultural point I was making about, there is a divide out there. Even in Virginia, you see Governor Northam, he's a Democrat. He's talking about regional differences in his own state, the South, Southern Virginia, Central Virginia wants to reopen. Northern Virginia, which is highly populated, more liberal, they want to keep things closed a little bit longer. So, uh, but President Trump, more than anyone, when you talk to his aides, he's saying he needs sports. He wants sports. But it's not entirely under his control. These commissioners are going to have to make – it's a financial decision. It's a liability decision. So so what happens – because everybody that seems like they talk about it, whether you're the experts or whatever, seems to think in September, October, November, whatever, we could get hit again if there's not a vaccine by them, which I'm assuming there wouldn't be. And it could, it could be maybe worse. We, we don't know. Isn't there a certain – see, I think it would be worse for the country almost if you start and then you have to stop again, which it seems to me like almost everybody is saying the odds – at least there's a, a possibility of that. It, it, so does that come into play too? Like, well, let's get back, let's get back, let's get back. Oh, my God, but at the end of September, we might have to, you know, throw it all away again. No, it's, it's part of the conversations I'm having with sources in both parties because – a lot, of, a lot of lawmakers in particular are saying we don't want to come back and raise everybody's hopes. And then let's say there's a second wave in October and sports are canceled. Nobody wins really in that scenario politically. Like you're seeing concerts be pushed to 2021, I wouldn't be surprised based on my own reporting that a lot of seasons are just pushed to 2021. I mean, even baseball right now, they're, they're trying to come up with an agreement 
but the players want to be paid half their salary with, but the owners are saying we want to maybe pay you half your salary, but not based on the numbers. Based uh, on the revenue brought in because you're going to be losing revenue with not having people in the stands. Exactly. Right. You got it. I, and, and, that, yeah. and that's the thing. I mean, the point Mike makes is, is, is strong. I mean, and, and the NFL is obviously the main focus in this country, whether we want to admit it as baseball, you know, as a baseball. Yeah, but baseball would be the first one back, Kevin. I think people but are I, kind of looking at that too. Yeah, I, I agree with but, what you're but, saying. But the NFL, if you lose the NFL, if there's no NFL this year, when we get to November and there's an election, that really does hit a, a, a really bad note for the Trump administration. That means that stuff is not close to normal because the NFL and, looks and, like... And the president acknowledges that to his advisors. I mean, he wants the NFL back. That's why he's on the calls personally with all these commissioners. That was Robert Costa, the Washington Post, joining us, who joined us in the middle of May, back in the middle of election season, long before uh, college football did return. The NFL obviously has played a full season, a little bit up in the air about some of the ways they've done it. Baseball returned in an abbreviated schedule, and obviously the NBA and the NHL both returned. I'm Kevin Cooney. This is the Year in Review 2020. Thanks for joining us here, and we hope you're having a great holiday season. When you think about Philadelphia and you think about the news of Philadelphia over the past, I would say, three, four decades, one man has kind of dominated the conversation. Came here in 1976. Still the anchor of Action News all these years. Jim Gardner joined us as Action News celebrated his 50, its 50th anniversary. And we talked about a lot of different topics, including sports in 2020 and some memories of Gary Papa and Jim O'Brien. It was arguably our best interview of the year. Here's Jim Gardner joining us on June 17th here on Work in the Beat. Let's look at college football. Yes. Penn State football is is an enormous economic engine for the entire central part of the state of Pennsylvania, right? right. You know this yep. better than, than anyone, Mike. So if we want to keep all the people involved with Penn State football, meaning players and support staff and coaches and, and you know, trainers and, and locker room guys, if we want to lower their risk as much as possible, you don't have Penn State football. And then you lose this enormous economic engine that, that not only pays for most of the other sports at Penn State, not only gives Penn, this Penn State community enormous satisfaction and pleasure, but economically drives the entire central part of that state for four or five months a year. It's, it's, it's a question that, that everybody is struggling with right now. And, and you know, the, the health officials are focused like a laser on health questions. Other people are focused on economic questions and neither of them are charged with the responsibility of reconciling those two. Our political leaders are charged with reconciling those two. And, um, you know, different leaders have different points of view and different strategies. Um, and we're going, we're going to have, be having an election in November, which is going to make it even goofier. Can't disagree with that. <laughs> and Jim, let me, the other moral equivalent on the Penn state example is what do you do if you're not bringing regular students back to, to campus? Because it almost feels unfair 
to bring a student athlete back to campus when you're saying for the rest of the general population, it's not safe to be here. If you're having remote learning for them, then why have the students who are not or student athletes who are not getting paid back on campus too to work basically for free so the campus can make an enormous amounts of money? It seems, Kevin, that that um, that Penn State will bring students back to campus. Right. Um, it may be a hybrid model where some classes are in person, other classes are online. Um, this is just going to be one of the real treacherous issues, I think, of this whole situation. Uh, all these colleges and universities bringing student populations back to campus. Um, you know, young people, and I'm not saying this is a criticism because I, I include young people among my children, uh, <laughs> and I think... And I think they're very responsible, but you know, the, the late adolescent, early adult brain does, does not have the same um, concept of risk that, that older people do. And uh, you know, I'm concerned about not just the lack of social distancing, but, but um, and not a lack of awareness, because these kids are smart, but a feeling that that even if they do get sick, it's not going to be overly serious. It's not going to be life threatening. They'll they'll be sick for a week and be done with it. And so I think that frees them to um, act in in ways that that they're used to and that and that you would expect young people uh, to uh, to do. You know, whether it be uh, in dorms and in fraternities and parties or whatever. And I'm concerned about that. Um, it's- Jim, I got to tell you, my in a non-sports but related, she works in a school. And and I work have, in a school now. So, yeah. And Kevin works in a school too. And she's so worried, not worried, maybe that's a bad word, but how are they going to bring school back? And all you ever hear people say is, well, young kids don't really get sick. And I'm like, but there's adults in those schools too. And I think right. it's going to be fascinating to see how the whole country comes back to education uh, in a manner in which kids are actually being educated, because I think it's going to be really hard to pull off. I'm an old guy, but I have a uh, uh, a son at Vanderbilt, and they just found out um, two days ago what their specific plans are going to be and, and, and when they're going to start, and they are all going back to campus uh, through the Thanksgiving uh, holiday, or actually uh, until Thanksgiving. Then they're going online for like the last week of classes and final exams. They have taken all the double rooms on campus and made them into single rooms. And so they're definitely making, they have extensive plans for the safety of the student population and the faculty and all. But you put 7,500 kids on a, on a campus, it's hard for me to understand how they're going to be able to, or, or whether they will even make an effort to be socially distanced and careful to the point where, um, where uh, you know, they're going to be safe. I, so, uh, I want to turn this a little happier, okay? Because, <laughs> and it's tough to do it, I understand. You've been at one station for 44 years. Um, That's only because nobody else would give me a job, you do understand. <laughs> Did you ever have a shot to leave? <laughs> uh, early on, early, early on. Um, you know, I, I was... Uh, I was uh, asked to consider um, 
I was contacted to consider a job in Chicago, a job in New York. Um, I'm talking about 40 years ago. And uh, not for a second that I consider either opportunity. What kept you, you didn't here? want to go back to New York? Not a, not on a bet. <laughs> wow. Okay. What kept you here? I love Philadelphia. What I loved it. I, as soon as I got here, I loved it here. Um, I just I loved everything about it. Second night I was here, Kevin. Second night I was here, I took myself down to the vet, bought a ticket. I sat in. Uh, uh, I guess the 300 level right field watched Richie Allen, or I guess it was Dick Allen at that point, right. hit this massive home run to left center field. And it was like, all right, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Philadelphia. And that was it. I, I, I just loved, loved Philadelphia. So among- That's right, and right after he, right after you got there, all the teams got good. Yeah. Like That's three right. years later, they were all in the finals. My timing was terrific. <laughs> what I mean, you've had you've been able to be a part of in a way, you know, the OA parade. I know I saw you at Citizens Bank Park that day with Gary in, in the third base dugout. You covered the, the the parade in seventeen or eighteen, I guess it was when the Eagles won. There was the Sixer parade in eighty three, a couple of Villanova parades. What stood out among all those experiences with you? Mm. I mean, is there one singular memory you have of those type of moments? Oh, boy. Uh, I guess the, I mean, when the Phillies won in 08, I mean, everybody, I, th- I think if you ask most people about that, they would talk about, you know, the Super Bowl. Um, and, and obviously that was an extraordinary time, although it seemed like it was a little unreal. I mean, here we have, a, a backup quarterback leading the Eagles through these playoffs and, and they keep winning and they go to the Super Bowl and he beats Brady. It just seems so bizarre almost. Obviously, you know, euphoric. But those those that Phillies team, um, you know, just just a great, great fun season. And uh I remember the parade, but for personal reasons. Yeah. Uh I know how pained Gary was that day. Um, he was in tremendous pain and, and they had us situated, uh, in the third base dugout or just on, just outside the third base dugout. And during the times when we weren't on the air, uh, we would go into the dugout, we would sit down, whatever. And to watch Gary try to climb the steps of those dugout of that dugout and then hop on the stool that we were on for the actual broadcast, he was uh, he was in serious shape. He was in terrible shape. Mm-hmm. And then, as soon as someone gave us the cue to start talking, it was like flicking a switch. He was mm-hmm. he was brilliant. You know, he was courageous. It was extraordinary. So much of my experience with that whole when someone says Phillies World Series, it's hard for me not to think of of Gary. Um, yeah. Our thanks to Jim Gardner for joining us. Uh, Jim has been an institution in Philadelphia and was gracious on uh, to give his time. That was in the middle of a highly turbulent time, obviously, the social justice. It was right after the George Floyd incident um, and the subsequent um, uh, unrest that engulfed the country and hit in Philadelphia. And Jim was kind enough to keep 
uh, a few minutes open for us, and, and we had a lot of fun. And I encourage you to go back and listen uh, to that show and all of our shows, uh, some great interviews that had taken place. This is Working the Beats, year in special, 2020. In July, Mike Missinelli joined us to talk about some uh, a lot of the topics that we have been discussing. Sports was slowly starting the return to the forefront. Baseball was about three weeks away from getting started. The NBA and the NHL were starting to enter the bubbles. But I wasn't really concerned about that, and we figured we'd try to take a different tact. We wanted to ask some of the people that about some of the people Mike had interacted with in the sports media business since he started at WIP and before it became the um, afternoon host at 97.5. Here's Mike Missanelli with some fun stories about, for to start, Steve Fredericks. Let you go. There's a couple of people I want to ask you about, and people who mm-hmm. you worked with in your career. One okay. is Steve Fredericks. You're just the immediate. He was the best. You know, Steve and I, uh, when I started working with Steve, like I, I was, I was scared to death. I, I had done some weekend stuff. I, uh, I did some stuff with Stan Hockman actually on weekends as a regular gig. And then when they offered me this job out of the blue, uh, and they said, we were Perry Steve Fredericks. I couldn't stand Steve, like listening to him <laughs> at sports talk radio. And I didn't really know what kind of guy he was. And just, I, I just knew that like, he was really arrogant about his opinions. And I'm going, well, that's kind of what I am. So how's this going to work? But, uh, I, I got there and I, he was the best ever. He, he, he learned like really early that he was at a stage of his career where he could facilitate me. And I always appreciate that with him. And he was like one of the smartest guys I've ever known. He knew everything about everything. Now he had lived like nine lives. So uh, he had been through so many things and so many experiences. And I, I just used to, he would tell me stories during the break that would make my hair raise about <laughs> his experience in the business and his problems with, uh, you know, substance abuse and, and, and all that. And I, I really got to admire him. I love him dearly. Stephen A. Smith. Stephen was fine. I love people say, well, how can you work with Stephen A? Um, Stephen was always the guy that I like when he was here. And, uh, I, you know, I, I knew what his character was all about. And I, I, it was fine by me. It was just that he, he approached things in a, in a very different way. But when we did the show together, it was funny because uh, I was still commuting. And, and I was commuting to New York. And I, I knew I had, a, like, a subordinate role with him because he was – Stephen right. A. Smith, he was the show. So um, it, it learned, it, it made me kind of learn a little bit of humility. I, w- I would literally take the train ride up. The station was right at Penn Station. I'd go up the escalator, get in the show. I'd say like 10 words in three hours and get back on the train. And then we're like, hey, I made him ride the train to New York every day. That's the way I looked at it. But he was great. Sometimes I would, come, I would come in from Philly all the way to New York and Stephen wouldn't be there. I go, where's Stephen? Oh, uh, He's in Milwaukee. He decided to, he wanted to see the Milwaukee Bucks last night. So we're, we're getting him a station in Milwaukee to broadcast from. He never knew where he was <laughs> at all times. But uh, he was fun to work with. I liked him. Angela and Cat- you know, he's still a friend. We, he, right. we have him on the show every now and then. Angelo Cataldi. Because working with the great I, res- I respect Angelo uh, immensely. You know, it's not easy to do a morning show for that long. Believe me, I did a morning show at WMMR and it rung me out. Now, his, I guess his character is, is a little more suited for a morning show because he's, he's a type of guy that can go to bed at 7 p.m. and get ready to do a, a morning show. But for him to carry it on that long, 
Uh, we had our battles when we were at WIP, like egotistical battles, like anything else. But uh, I, I, we're not friendly, but I respect them a lot. Ty and Nat. They're the best. I mean, um, I, Tyrell was my producer way back in the day. And uh, uh, when they changed over uh, the show and Jason Martinez was my producer and they decided that they were going to pair him with, with Harry Mays. And, uh, I, they asked me who, who I wanted as a producer. And I remember Tyrone, I, he was smart. I, I think he got me and, uh, you know, Nat adds a, a dynamic to it. So, um, I, I think we put together the, the right pair. Ty, Ty's been a really good, uh, producer for me. He's, he's hardworking, but he knows everything about everything and, uh, you can bounce anything off him and not, not feel that he's going to be lost on anything. And uh, so that, that, that dynamic has worked for us pretty well. I think Mike, final question, Kern. I, I got, I got two things, Mike. Yes, One sir. is if you do, you asked me how to ask it. Cooney was dying to ask me about asking. Well, there were two other guys. Hold on, wait, 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 hold on. There were two other guys. I was going to ask you about, but uh, okay. I, I want to be, go ahead. I want, go ahead. all right. Go to Kern first and then come back. No, no, no. Eskin. Uh, Let's yeah. do Eskin. <laughs> oh, you're going to ask me about Eskin. No, whoever no. the other one was, and then I'll get to, to mine. Oh, Eskin. Okay. Uh, well, come on. It, it was the most miserable three years of my life. <laughs> really. You know, people say, well, like, you know, I've worked with people I didn't like before. And I go, yeah, but you weren't right next to them. You know, you weren't right next to them trying to do a show with them for four hours. He had no concept of, of a team. Like, like how, how, to, how to actually put together a show with somebody else. And it was just frustrating every day. Who's the other one? No, 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 no. This kind of ties. You've had battles with Eskin. You had battles with uh, Josh Innes, who was a competitor against you. How much of that is real life battle, and how much of that is stick for? Well, it's never stick with me. No, but how much do you think from that? How much <laughs> like from I'm, that? I'm, how that, much from that? That is thing was like he when he got he got personal and uh, listen. I knew he was desperate to try to chop into me uh, ratings wise, but he he crossed the line and he crossed the line. I, you know. I, I almost jacked him up one day at Eagles practice. <laughs> uh, no, you would, no, you listen, wouldn't I, do it, that. You wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. Uh, when you go personal, it's like, you know, frivolously personal and, uh, it, it, and think you get away with it because you're hiding behind a microphone. I don't respect that at all. So that, that was my beef with that dude. The true story on that was I wasn't going to ask about Eskin or Ennis. Um, you know, I want to be polite. Mike was a guest, but Mike was willing to answer. That's what made Mike a great interview. So, um, Mike Missanelli, we were happy to have Mike on the show. Uh, obviously we, we had a ton of other great people and I should name some of them here. So you don't think that I'm skipping them. We just, you know, obviously had to compress for time on a lot of things. Uh, we have to thank Mike Silski, Jack McCaffrey, Keith Pompey, uh, Kevin Nagandi from ESPN joined us this year. Uh, Matt Breen, who has joined us on the Phillies. Jim Salisbury has joined us talking Phillies. Ross Tucker, Jason Matitas, Rob Motti, Dave Jones, uh, 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 Amy Fadul. A bunch of people, Ricky Ricardo, uh, who joined us to talk different aspects of it. Uh, I don't want to, I don't, I want to make sure they're all mentioned uh, because they were all great interviews. We just obviously had to compress things for time. And so uh, I thank all of them. Uh, Bob Cooney, my cousin, uh, who joined us. No, we're not really cousins. I should point that out. Uh, one of the people that did join us was immediately 
after he had left NBC Sports Philadelphia. Derek Gunn uh, came on to talk about the State of the Eagles and also sports and the social justice movement. This was after the Milwaukee Bucks had decided not to to play a game in the NBA bubble uh, where uh, NFL camps had shut down, baseball had shut down for a couple of days. And uh, we went to ask Derek about his thoughts. Uh, this is from August 28th. This is Derek Gunn on working the beat. More to, on a personal level, what do you think the reaction is in NFL locker rooms right now to what's going on? And would they be willing? We're, you know, we're two weeks out. Would they be willing to use the power kind of in the same way the NBA players are to force social change on that issue? Um, I, I wouldn't put it past them. I know teams are having meetings daily about what they want to do, what action they want to take. A lot of players, especially with the Eagles, are talking about kneeling uh, before the national anthem and getting attention in that regard. But but something has to be done. These senseless killings have to stop. It's become too commonplace now. It's becoming an everyday occurrence. And it's becoming too ritualistic in a lot of ways that these things continue to happen. We've seen it too much and too often. Too many heads have turned the other way and looked the other way, and the issue has not been addressed properly. Now you're starting to get the thing that's most impressive is that decades ago, years ago, this used to be a black cause only. Right. Now you're starting to see not just multitudes of nationalities joining in, but other countries as well uh, joining in protesting. That's the only way the voice is going to be heard. We've seen already certain police departments around the country have fired, suspended police officers, holding them accountable, but not nearly enough Mm -hmm. because these actions continue to happen. I think whether it's city, state, whatever the case may be, it has to get even tougher. Now, don't get me wrong, because I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends who who are cops. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who have kids who are police officers. There are a lot of good men and women putting on that uniform daily. Absolutely. Yep. But there's a few bad seeds in anything you do in life. I don't care what we do in life, whether it's sports, uh, business, religion. There are a few bad seeds that can make the entire multitudes look bad. They have to continue to be weeded out until the problem is rectified. It's not going to be rectified overnight. It's not going to be rectified in a month. But hopefully within a year, we can have a clamp on this to where there's consistency and accountability like we've never seen in the country before. Do you think uh, – hold on, Mike. I got one one follow-up. Were you surprised to see the NBA players use the power that they have? And and I think they – I think players now understand the power they have from a financial standpoint because – they force the NBA to open up their arenas as polling spots and, and open up a lot of areas because they realized that by threatening to shut it down, they had the owners a little bit in, in a sense of the owners didn't want to lose that revenue. Do you think they realize the economic power they have now? I think that players across the board nowadays understand the finances of who they work for better than ever before. You look at these contracts across the board, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, these contracts are unbelievable. Um, and I do believe they understand now they wield more power than they ever had before. So I applaud them. If they feel that it, that it within their right, mm-hmm. and that is socially uh, justifiable, 
to take a stand to get attention. You look at the WNBA, even NHL shut it down. Yeah. You know, I never thought I would see that before. Pro soccer shut it down for a minute. I never thought I would see that before. That's how you hit back. And if you can get the owners, you look at what the NFL has done across the board. Mm-hmm. Owners are now putting in millions of dollars to combat social injustice and racial discrimination. Never saw that before. Never thought I would see that before. Now other pro entities are doing it as well. And it does, you know, the old saying is you have to crawl before you walk. Right. And we've been crawling a long time across the board trying to get this issue to the forefront. And now we're starting to walk a little bit more in terms of addressing it and attacking it. But it's still far from over. That was Derek Gunn from August 28th talking about the social justice movement that was taking place in pro sports at that time. A few weeks later, we will be back and we will be working on the NFL. And there's no better person to talk NFL than Ray Dittinger. So on September 11th, the day the the NFL season got started in Kansas City, we asked Ray what he expected from the upcoming season. Um. I'm kind of with you. I'm probably a little more optimistic than that. I, I, I think they have, I think they have good players, and I think I do like the coach, and I really like the quarterback, um, and that's not a bad place to start. Um, but there are a lot of um, there are a lot of there's an awful lot of uncertainty about the season, about the league, about the competition, about everything, and you know, and so this team is not immune to that. Um, I mean, I've had a, a very weird preseason. No preseason games. You talked about that. No spring camp at all. Um, and this is a team that was really counting on getting a lot out of its rookie class. I mean, they drafted a whole bunch of – they drafted for speed. They drafted for offensive punch, which they needed. They brought in some kids who I think can play. But right now, are they ready to play? I'm not so sure. So, yeah, I, um, I Kev, I, I don't know what to expect. I, I really don't know what to expect. I mean, my feeling is that the, that – if they can keep most of the team healthy and on the field, uh, that they'll once again be they'll they'll be a team that'll win. Uh, I think with the expanded playoffs, to me, I think they should go to the postseason. Uh, but am I wildly optimistic about how far they can go? I would probably say not. I I kind of I guess I'm kind of with where most people are right now, which is I, I do think right now on paper the Cowboys are the best team in the division. You know, I think they had a really good off season. I think McCarthy is going to be a better head coach um, than uh, than Garrett was, and uh, and I think they're I think the Cowboys are pretty good. I think the Cowboys they might make a run at finally getting back to a Super Bowl, um, but the Eagles are certainly, in my view, no worse than second in that division and probably good enough to get to the postseason again. Mike, right? Isn't it too? As in most years, going back, it's going to come down to the two Dallas games. I mean, if somehow. They can figure out a way to beat Dallas twice, which I don't know if they can, but Andy's had some good success against Garrett. You know, they could win the division. I, I agree with you and Kevin. I, I mean, I think they're a play. They can be a playoff team, but probably not as a division winner. But the season, basically, if you don't think Washington or the Giants are going to do much to change it, comes down to those two games. Probably so. Probably so. And you know, and we've seen the we've seen the pattern now uh, in this division. It goes Dallas Eagles. Dallas Eagles, and so the Eagles won it last year, so form would tell you that this would be Dallas's year. Um, and, again, I, I do think they're good. I mean, they got a little lucky in the draft. I mean, C.D. Lamb fell in their lap. Never should have happened, but it did. 
uh, and you put him on the same field with Zeke Elliott and uh, Amari Cooper, it's a pretty dangerous offense. Uh, so I think the Cowboys are going to be pretty good. But I think the Eagles are going to be right there. I, I think that uh, they got a little bit of a break with the schedule uh, in the sense that I think they have three pretty winnable games right out of the right out of the gate. I think that Washington, the Rams here, and then Cincinnati here gives them a real good chance, I think, to start 3-0. and and, um, and we don't know what's going to happen with the league beyond into the month of October, November, December. If, if the league starts going sideways at some point due to COVID or whatever, and they have to shorten the schedule or teams are not going to be able to play certain games, if you can get to that point and you're, and you're sitting at 3-0, and you're in a pretty strong position. And I think the schedule sets up in a way that the Eagles could do that. Well, and especially when you consider like the three. Well, it didn't exactly work out that way, did it? Um, that was Ray Dittinger from September 11th. And he proof that even the, the great ones, um, sometimes the crystal ball gets lazy. Uh, the, the Eagles, excuse me, started 0-2-1 out of that, including the tie to the Bengals, who have only had two wins up until we're recording this on Friday the 18th. So, yeah, uh, things went sideways, and they went sideways, including with the quarterback. And uh, obviously Carson Wentz has become the main story in Philadelphia since the season began. And and the questions about whether Doug Peterson will keep his job three years after a Super Bowl, it's pretty remarkable to think that is a main topic. This is Kevin Cooney, and this is the Working the Beat Best of 2020. And as the season moved on, it became clear the Eagles were an organization in desperate trouble. In mid-October, we had Anthony Gargano from 97.5 on to talk about the Eagles and the simple question, did this organization get too big for its britches in the wake of the Super Bowl? Do you think they got too arrogant in the wake of the Super Bowl? You know, we yeah, heard the new I norm. Mean, I know that people said that, I, and I hear that. I mean, what what does arrogant mean? Is the, does it mean? Or I, I don't think they're arrogant people. At times, they can come across, um, you know, Doug, who I think is a sweetheart of a guy, right? But at times, when doesn't he, like to be questioned, caught, right? Like when he's caught in a spot, he reverts to, well, you know, you didn't play football, and the answer is, well, did you? I mean, you wore a cap. What about Belichick, though? All right, what about that? Yeah. So that's a defense mechanism, and I don't hold it against Doug. Um, I don't think he's an arrogant guy. I, I Howie, think, though. How, Howie, I, Howie's arrogant. I think it's less – and, look, I know nobody wants to pick up for Howie or hear me pick oh. up for Howie, but I will say I think it's less arrogance – and I think it's more being self-conscious, right? So let's have a real – you want to have a real talk? Go ahead. So here's a guy who's been told his whole life, right, professional life. You're not a football guy. Right. 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 You're not a football guy. Mm-hmm. Go, go go, press the buttons on the calculator, right? Like, yeah. You know, and after a while, you get beat up by it. Sure. And then you start – and you turn around and you go, hey, I've been in the league for 20 years. Doesn't that since I cast a check in a, in the NFL? Doesn't that for, make me a football you know, guy? Right, right. Eighteen years. So I think, but I do think that he holds on to that that's baggage 
And that's what makes him seem arrogant, which is he's overcompensates. And I think like the Hertz pick, like I think he's, well, that that's the one that paints him as arrogant. That right. I think he's genuine. Like, I think he's a genuine, genuine guy. Right. Right. Like, you know, I think he's like, Hey man, you know, we get a quarterback, we can flip him. I hated the pick. I hated the pick. Yeah. Because for a million reasons, one, you, you need weapons. You can't, you, you have not drafted well. You can't throw away picks. So I think he was trying. I, I, I think you're right in that that was an overcompensation pick. Uh, we're talking to Anthony Gargano. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. Of, I think we both agree the Flyers are in good shape, but of the three yeah. other teams in town, which one's in the biggest trouble? Eagles. Really? I don't know why. Yeah. I expected you to say Phillies. Um, well, baseball, you could fix baseball, but you got to get the right people in, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, listen, it was tough because I want – I kind of struggle between those two. Yeah. Uh, my worry with the Eagles is I mean, there's not a lot of young talent. Right? They, have a, they, they almost have to go through – and I'm worried they're going to waste – whatever Wentz has or is right. Phillies. I mean, you like, you like Noah, even though he's not an ace, you like Wheeler. Eflin pitched well, Mm -hmm. right? So you got three starters. Your bullpen is a complete disaster. So you need a closer. You need everything in the bullpen position players. If Hoskins. Well, they have fifteen. They have fifteen designated hitters, I think, right now on the roster. I know. <laughs> but if Hoskins is real, right? Like, if, remember that little yeah that stretch he had. If he's real, right before the injury, it's not a complete disaster. But it all hinges. Like you have the real Muto issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, are you going to sign him? You have to redo your whole farm system. That's a disaster yeah. because I like Bohm a lot. But who? What do you got after Bohm? You hope Spencer Howard is there in the rotation. And he's maybe a three or a four at this point. Yeah. Right. Agreed. So, you know, I don't know. I mean. You need to fill center field. You probably need a left fielder because you're not sure about him. Yes. You're going to have to get a shortstop in here. I don't think the catcher's coming back. I've kind of. That's a a huge hit. I mean, and they have nothing in the system that percolating to bring up immediately. Now, and, and here's another one that kills you. Oh, jeez. You're, 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 we're answering this question. It's the Phillies. Uh, King is <laughs> yeah. a problem, man. King Kingery's a. And, and here's the here's the other thing. What I I love John Middleton, right? I think the yeah. guy can be a great owner. I do too. But what in the world does he see with Clentac, McPhail, Ned Rice, who's just an extension of Clentac? What have they done? Like, what am I missing? I'd love to give those guys the benefit of the doubt, but what, what, they've been horrible. They've done nothing. Well, they failed miserably. I think they're just trying to basically run out the contracts at this point with these guys. Yeah, if, you're a, a, if you're a cigar magnate, you don't get that luxury. Yeah, if you lost $180 million and you're cutting the play by uh, the pre and post game host because he's a luxury, I mean, yeah. that that's. Yeah, I mean that there may be some underlying problems we don't know about with them financially. Maybe. maybe. Um
That was Anthony Gargano talking about the Phillies and the Eagles and which team was in bigger trouble back in October. We thank you for joining us here on this Work in the Beat Best of the 2020 special. Uh, we've had a ton of great interviews, a ton of great guests, uh, and we appreciate everyone who joins us, especially on the Zoom calls that we've had to kind of do since we uh, brought this program along in March and ever since the pandemic hit. Uh, our final clip that we want to play uh, was the end of our interview with Jim Gardner and it involved him and how much longer he wanted to do and what his post-retirement plans would be. This question, but you just mentioned, you know, you've seen Lisa leave. You've seen John Rollins. There's been a number of people, you know, who have hit retirement age. You, you said you're 72. How much longer do you want to keep doing this? Uh, you know what? It's, it's something that I really don't think about. I mean, that may sound, um, disingenuous. Uh, I love the work. I love um, interacting with the people at work. So far, they have um, not escorted me out the door. <laughs> although, although one never knows what tomorrow will bring. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to still have the opportunity to do what I do. I've, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy. Um, in Philadelphia for having been able to do this, uh, for a professional lifetime. And, uh, you know, I suppose at some point I won't be able to do it anymore, but that's not yet. And you haven't even thought about what you would want to do. Have you like no, like big retirement plans, no trips to X or, you know, certain spots or anything. I want to, I want to, uh, yes, I, I exactly what I want to do. Okay. I want to, I want to be a sports writer for the Delaware County Times and have a and and have a spot in, in the press box. Hey, hey, hey Jim, the Phillies and the Eagles. Hey Jim, that's what I want to do. Newspaper journalism, as Mike and I have both learned, it's kind of it's kind of not in the in a good way right now. You may not. That's okay. I'll work for free. You'll work for free. Don't don't tell them. Don't that. tell them that. They'll take it's you up on it. Jim. And that was the end of our interview with Jim Gardner. And it was a joy. It was a joy to interview all these people and to uh, share what was the thoughts of the day. And it's always good at the end of a year to kind of look back and uh, think about it. Let me give my thanks. Uh, thanks to uh, the people at Last Out Media who have uh, helped syndicate this show um, and have supported us, uh, especially John Creighton, um, over and uh, Frankie Donahue. Who have supported the show back to the wildfire days back in uh, 2007. Uh, thanks to all of our guests. Uh, thanks to the people who have uh, reached out, dedicated listeners, and you guys know who you are uh, that come up with suggestions. We always are going to welcome them coming into the new year. Uh, I got to thank my partner, um, Mr. Kern. Uh, it, it's always fun, it's always entertaining. Um, he always brings a viewpoint that makes you think uh, he he has fun. We have fun doing this, uh, even though we haven't really seen each other since March 13th or 14th. Um, so I appreciate that on a personal level. My wife, uh, uh, Bessie, and my stepdaughter, Katie, and my stepson, Joey. I got to thank them uh, for what has been a all their support through what has been a uh, a really, really difficult year, 
in a lot of senses for all of us. I know when we uh, get together in 2021, we hope it is a better year. We hope it's a safer year. Uh, we hope that we continue to move forward and uh, enjoy the games that we do. Uh, thank you for joining us on this special edition. We'll have normal editions through uh, the course of the rest of the year. We'll have our end of the year special coming up on uh, between Christmas and New Year's. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Have a safe holiday. Please mask up if you're going out uh, and, and be safe. Uh, and we will see you in the new year. Thanks again to all our guests, uh, and we will talk to you soon. We know the story.